Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I catch up with Justin Drake from the Ethereum Foundation. We catch up about what he's been working on since he last was on the show almost three years ago. We chat about the progress that's been made on VRFs and how these can be used in Ethereum's POS architecture, the concept of ultrasound money, where it started, what it means, and where Justin sees it going, as well as other interests he has in ZK generally. Before we kick off, I want to share a quick announcement from one of our partners from last fall's ZK Summit 8 event. Risk Zero would like to announce the next version of their ZKVM is now available on GitHub. The new version greatly improves performance, adds GPU support, and includes a pure Rust verifier for easy inclusion in WASM projects. Check all of this out on their GitHub, github.com slash risk zero. That's risk the number zero. We'll add the link in the show notes. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Mina Protocol. The need for private trustless solutions is clear. A new era of ZK-powered decentralized applications is coming, and Mina is the place to build them. Introducing Mina ZK Ignite Cohort Zero, where developers complete tutorials and build zero-knowledge apps or ZK apps and get rewarded. There are a quarter of a million Mina tokens up for grabs for ZK Ignite Cohort Zero participants. Over 2,000 builders have joined Cohort Zero, and nearly half of them have already submitted code to win prizes. And there are still more prizes to go. Cohort Zero is finishing soon, so head to minaprotocol.com forward slash ZK podcast to get involved today. And if you're tuning into this podcast later, no worries, Mina will be launching additional ZK Ignite cohorts. Just head to minaprotocol.com forward slash ZK podcast to check out the best way to get involved. That's minaprotocol.com forward slash ZK podcast. So thanks again, Mina Protocol. And now here's our episode. Today, I'm here with Justin Drake. Welcome back to the show, Justin. Yeah, thanks for having me again. I was just looking back through the archives to better understand when you were last on. Uh, You've been on twice, as far as I could find. And once was like April 2019. And then you were talking about VDFs. And then we did an interview in February 2020, like right before everything went down. We were at the Stanford Blockchain Conference and Vitalik was on as well. And it's just sort of wild to remember that recording because it was just weeks before everything got locked down with one of the last sort of in-person ones I got to do for a long time. But um, I think maybe a starting point would be to hear what's been up. I mean, a lot has happened <laughs> since, you know, February 2020. So yeah, <laughs> tell me, tell me a little bit about what you've been up to. Oh, wow. So much has happened. I mean, one of the big events, of course, is is the merge. For sure. But yeah, I think my, my role has evolved during that time. The research, at least the blue sky research that I've been doing in the early days is is to a large extent complete. And so mm. to the theme of this uh, discussion, you know, I've been transitioning a little bit more to the to the human layer, to the economics layer. You know, in addition to to looking at uh, ultrasound money, I've also been looking at themes like MEV and censorship resistance, which are not on the cryptography side of things, but, you know, more on the economic side of things. And mm-hmm. really our field is, is crypto economics. And I feel like I'm exploring this, this second chapter, as it were, the economics side after 
uh, being fairly satisfied with the, the first chapter of cryptography. So I kind of want to hear, let's start on that sort of completion of the cryptography side. The first episode that we did together was on VDFs, verifiable delay functions. Right. Did I remember it? Yes. That's correct. Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and actually, I'll add a link to that. I want to hear what's happened with that research. I mean, at the time, for me, at least, you were just presenting this idea. I didn't actually know what this thing was. How far has that gone? Right. So... VDFs, like many things in Ethereum, is a very ambitious project. And it's okay. especially crazy because it involves ASICs. It involves uh, hardware. And ASICs just are, you know, they take a lot of time and they're fairly expensive. Now, it turns out that in a few weeks, uh, in December of this year, um, we're going to have the first test samples of the, the ASIC. So we've, we went ahead, we, we taped out the 12 nanometer chip uh, with Global Foundries. And, you know, fingers crossed, it should just work out of the box um, and we'll have uh, these extremely fast VDF evaluators but that basically do sequential computation extremely fast. You know, we're talking 128-bit modular uh, squaring at a 1 gigahertz frequency. So one modular square per nanosecond. Let's give a little bit of context to like where this lives though like is this purely research is this something where it's like you had an ambitious research project and now you're seeing an asic or are these things already in the ethereum that we know today do they exist and this is actually going to optimize something or is it still sort of like oh well now we have this cool optimized thing we could use in the future right so the the research is very much done but it it's not in production yet so we have this this primitive which is interesting because it's it's a very unique and exotic VDF primitive because it kind of connects to the physics of our world. So just like proof of work connects to the energy consumption, VDFs connects to time. And you know, mo most cryptographic primitives like encryption and hashing and signatures and snarks, they're kind of detached from the physics of things. And this very unique cryptographic primitive unlocks various use cases which are very interesting. One is unbiasable uh, randomness. Mm -hmm. um, another very interesting one is what's called time lock puzzles or delay encryption, which is this, this idea that you can encrypt a piece of information and it's kind of automatically decrypts at some future point in time. Mm. And this is actually very interesting in the context of MEV and censorship. Totally. And the reason is that you can have this thing called encrypted mempools. So the idea of an encrypted mempool is that when you broadcast your transaction, you actually broadcast it encrypted. And then it gets included on chain encrypted. And only after it's been included on chain does it get decrypted and executed. And because your transaction is encrypted, people can't see the contents of, of it. And in particular, they can't front run you and they can't censor you, uh, at least not as, as easily as it, as it is possible to do today. I mean, one of the ways that I've always heard this described is threshold decryption. Does this replace that concept or is it also being executed by a VDF? Yeah. So there's kind of, there's kind of these two flavors of what I call automagical decryption. Okay. 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 <laughs> so it's like when people are using that term, they're talking about a different technique. They're not talking about the one you just described. Exactly. So there's kind of two flavors, two very natural flavors of encrypted mempools. One using threshold decryption and mm -hmm. the other one using kind of time-based decryption. Interesting. And they have different assumptions. So for the, the threshold version, you're basically trusting that 
a committee is majority honest, meaning that some large fraction of it is is honest. And if they're dishonest, then they could do bad things. One of the things they can do is they can not choose to not decrypt specific messages. Mm. Um, or maybe even worse is that they can decrypt things ahead of time um, and you kind of lose the encryption. With VDFs, one of the very nice things is you, you just have to trust physics. You're no longer trusting a committee. <laughs> well. um, and so it's kind of a a more conservative security assumption but it it comes with with downsides you know one of them is that you need you need hardware and kind of another one of them is that it's a little harder to work with because you know you have to wait these delays and so that can add maybe artificial latency in your system mm. so it's a bit harder to work with potentially is there a way that you would have them both happening at the same time would they ever be combined or you'd always do an either or yeah you can combine them and one of the things that you can do, for example, is you can have an encryption mechanism, which by default is threshold. But if the committee goes offline for some reason, then after a period of time, kind of the delay kicks in and then it automatically decrypts. And so there's actually this form of encryption, which kind of generalizes both threshold and delay encryption, which is called witness encryption. Now, witness encryption is a little bit of moon math, uh, but the, the idea here is that you can use any arbitrary witness to decrypt your, your, your payload. And so the witness could be a proof that either the committee has signed off on the decryption of your message or enough time has passed. And if you want, you can have like these arbitrary complicated statements. So one of the statements could be, for example, only decrypt once Ethereum has finalized the block, which includes the encrypted payload. Just one thing. Do you keep saying auto magical? Is that what you're saying? That is what I was saying. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you say it very subtly, so I wasn't sure if I was like missing it, but uh, that's a good word. Yeah. So basically we want to have this guarantee that your encrypted payload will decrypt. So there's kind of a very naive thing that you can try and do for encrypted mempools where it doesn't involve any encryption, which is that you kind of commit to your transaction by including a hash of the transaction on chain, and then you make a promise that you're going to reveal your transaction and then execute it. But the problem here is that you can't force people to actually reveal those transactions. And so instead, what we need is encryption with a sort of guaranteed decryption. And the two main natural flavors are threshold decryption and time-based decryption. I've done a few episodes where we've mentioned only threshold decryption. I actually didn't realize there was a second technique that we could use. And the pushback from the MEV crew has always been, oh, you can try to get rid of the MEV there, but the MEV will just move elsewhere. What do you, what do you make of that? Right. So there's different forms of MEV, in my opinion. There's kind of good and public MEV, and there's kind of bad and, you know, MEV that is triggered based on, on, on user transactions. So let me try and, and flesh out these two buckets. So in the first bucket, you have things like, like arbitrage and things like liquidations, or even things like backrunning. And the idea here is that anyone can go ahead and grab this, this MEV, and it actually performs a, a service to the ecosystem. And, you know, MEV is extractable value. It could be extractable value that is specifically put there by the designer of a decentralized application. And so one of the classic examples here is liquidations. We want people to trigger transactions 
um, that will liquidate, you know, very risky positions. And in order to, you know, guarantee that, we give them an incentive, a reward. And so that's a form of MEV, which is very good because it's constructive. Now, the other form of MEV, which is, is toxic and it tends to be kind of triggered by user transactions, is essentially front-running. The idea here is that as a user, I, I, I make a transaction and this transaction specifically is going to get uh, front-run. And my belief is that front-running can basically be removed, yeah. eliminated with these encrypted mempools. But of course, the first type of public good MEV will will stay. Have you been following some of the, I don't know if the word is controversy, but like findings about the MEV operators of today? I don't know if that's what you call them, but I had the Flashbots folks on some time ago and they talked about the PBS the proposer builder separation. And then I learned later that because of this model, there were sort of these centralizing points in the actors actually getting MEV. We had all these conversations about how validators could potentially be centralized or be censoring, how they could be coerced. And then we learned that actually there's these different places in that stack, which could be. And I'm just curious, like, it sounds like you're obviously digging more into MEV. What are your thoughts on this? And are you looking for ways to mitigate this kind of censorship at these different points? Yeah, 100%. I did a very deep dive into this whole topic. And so the Flashbots people talk about this MEV supply chain. I like to think of it as a a pipeline, as a linear pipeline, where you have various actors um, involved. So it kind of starts with the user. The user goes through an interface to, to, to create a transaction, to publish it to the mempool. This uh, transaction gets observed in the mempool by so-called searchers. Searchers take these transactions and they create so-called bundles that extract value. And then these bundles get sent to builders that produce blocks and then these blocks get sent to a relay, yeah. uh, which acts as an intermediary between the builder and the proposer. And it's the relay part that can be centralized, right? I feel like that's what we talked about in the last time. Yeah. So it turns out that at every single step of the pipeline, there's an opportunity for, for censorship. Oh. And for every single step of the pipeline, we need different types of solutions. Oh, okay. And it turns out that for relays specifically, which is a a big contentious topic nowadays uh, because of OFAC compliance. There is, as you said, something called enshrined PBS, um, which is this idea that instead of doing proposer builder separation outside of consensus, which is a little clunky and a little hacky, and it's basically something called MevBoost, let's do it very cleanly in consensus where you don't need the, the relays. And so right now, the, well, the most popular relay is the Flashbots relay, and they're based in the US and they have to do this, this, or at least they've chosen to do this filtering of transactions that involve addresses on the OFAC list. And the, the net effect of that is because most of the validators are using the Flashbot relay as their relay, uh, roughly 80% of blocks are so-called OFAC compliant. Although I heard, for some reason, I, I heard it had gone down. Because the light was shone on it, that number had fallen more to like 60%. Is that possible? So there's a website called uh, mevwatch.info, uh, and I'm looking at it right now. It's at 73%. Okay. And the, there's a graph, with, uh, which is basically, it's seemingly <laughs> up only <laughs> in oh, terms no. of the, the, the red area. Okay, so so forget it. I must be thinking of something else. Okay. So there's kind of several pieces of good news here. Like one is that relays will completely disappear in two to three years once we have enshrined PBS. 
Another piece of good news is that this form of censorship is called weak censorship. Is this idea that transactions actually make it on chain? The only bad thing is that they get delayed a little bit. Now, we can do some quick math. If 80% of the blocks are censoring, are OFAC compliant, that means that only one in every block will contain these transactions. And so the, the time to the, the average time of inclusion of these transactions will be multiplied by five. And so the slot time is 12 seconds. 12 times five is 60 seconds. So it takes one minute for a censored transaction to go on chain. Okay. Now, this is still 10 times faster than Bitcoin on average. <laughs> and I guess the other piece of good news is that there is this community effort, you know, this this desire to address the situation even in the short term mm -hmm. before entrying PBS. And there's various efforts to build, um, you know, credibly neutral relays. Um, and this is something which I don't think has been announced publicly, but I guess I could I could do it now. Is um, the ultrasound.money team is working on such a credibly neutral relay? So we're building the ultrasound relay, which hopefully people will use and help address this situation. So this brings us to another topic, which is kind of one of the reasons that I invited you on ultrasound money. Like that's a thing, and this is something that I don't know anything about. And you just talked about a team. You know, it's not just a, a meme anymore. It's, it's a thing. So tell me a little bit about like, what is ultrasound money? Maybe even give me a little bit of the background. Like, where does this concept start from? Okay, so let's try and give context and, and motivation. So for a lot of technical people, you know, we, we like to think that uh, blockchains are secured by mathematics and cryptography. And this is, you know, where I came in, in you know, maybe five years ago, mm -hmm. but it turns out that this is just not the case. There's two <laughs> pillars that are securing blockchains. Pillar number one is cryptography yeah. and the other one is economics. And that's why we call it crypto economics. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that we can make the cryptography level extremely secure. You know, we can have like provably secure 128 bits, you know, in the quantum Oracle model, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But the, the economics pillar is, you know, much weaker. And it turns out that the overall security is your weakest link. It is important to focus on the economics. And there's this concept called economic security, which basically tries to quantify how much security is backing your system. And it basically puts a number on how many dollars an attacker needs to go attack a specific a blockchain. And this is something that hasn't really be, been done very much uh, until recently. Now, if you go through the exercise, you realize that Bitcoin has on the order of five to $10 billion of economic security, meaning that an attacker with that much money can just completely break the system. They can, mm. for example, only extend the chain with empty blocks they can start doing reorgs. The whole thing just collapses. And now think, let's think to ourselves, who has $5 billion? Many, many nation states, Russia, China, the US, $5 billion is peanuts. I mean, even someone like... FTX. Perfect example. Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, his evil strategy could have been to just 51% attack Bitcoin and destroy this whole industry. Yeah. And so... We want to be building settlement layers for the intent of value. We want infrastructure, which is so-called World War III proof. And in my opinion, the only way to get there is to have 
a trillion dollars of security, or ideally trillions of dollars of economic security. And the reason is that no single attacker can go take down these, these systems if we're talking about trillions of dollars of economic security. But when you say economic security, do you still mean needing that much value on the network? Right. Does it have to be actually like money invested, tokens owned? Like, is it is it that straight calculation or is there some other calculation that goes into that? Yeah, that's a, a great point. So there's kind of, there's two concepts here. One is what is called TVS, total value secured. And if you go on, on DeFi Lama or Layer2Beat or whatever, there's these websites which will tell you how much value is being secured by these chains. Mm-hmm. And if you take Ethereum, for example, there's on the order of $300 billion being secured. There's Ether itself, the asset, which yeah. is about $150 billion. And then the other $150 billion is ERC-20s and NFTs and all sorts of other things like that. Now, the other important concept is how much value is securing the chain. And that is much, much smaller. Uh, so in the case of Ethereum proof of stake, it's the amount of ETH staking, which is about 15 million ETH. And that corresponds to $18 billion at current prices. And so we have this concept called the security ratio, which is the ratio of the total value secured divided by the total value securing the chain. And it, we want this security ratio to be to be low. And right now, the security ratio, having a look on ultrasound money, is 18.9, meaning that there's roughly 19 times more value being secured on Ethereum than is actually securing Ethereum. So the staking is the second one, like the amount staked is the second value. Correct, yes. And okay. you want the second value to be extremely high. Now, if we're going to be securing the internet of value, you know, we need to appreciate how large the internet of value is. And it turns out that it's on the order of hundreds of trillions of dollars, mm. right? If you take all the wealth and on, on the whole world, it's ballpark figure, it's one quadrillion dollars. And, you know, if... <laughs> New category. <laughs> um, and, you know, we can expect in a success scenario uh, that hundreds of trillions of dollars will flow to the incentive value. And in order to comfortably secure that, you know, we need to have at least, let's say, one, $1 trillion dollars of economic security so that the, the security ratio doesn't go into the thousands, um, which would be a very precarious situation to be. And the reason it would be so precarious is because the security ratio measures how much leverage an attacker has to cause damage. Mm. If they were to invest $1, they'd be able to break $100 or $200 or $1,000. And one of the kind of scary things with Bitcoin, for example, is that we should expect the security ratio to go to roughly a thousand. Um, and the reason is that with Bitcoin, the issuance is going to zero and it's only going to be secured by transaction fees. And transaction fees represent roughly one thousandth of where we, where we need to be. And so Bitcoin potentially could be attacked uh, with, with a very small budget in, in the future relative to its size. Is this idea here that like, there will just be fewer miners because it won't be worth it for there to be as many miners. Like, will there actually be like a reduction in number of actors? And that's why it becomes so much easier to attack. That's what I'm sort of trying to figure out. Like, what would an attack like that on Bitcoin actually look like? Right. So in order to perform a 51% attack on Bitcoin, you need to have more hash rate, more hash power than the rest of the network combined. Yeah. Um, and basically what needs to be done is to buy these mining rigs and connect them to the grid and buy the transformers and the cooling and, and, and the data centers and whatnot. 
Now, ballpark figure in the future, my expectation is that the cost to attack Bitcoin will be roughly a thousand times less than its market cap. So let's say that Bitcoin becomes like gold, $10 trillion market cap. A thousand times less, that would be $10 billion. So it would cost $10 billion in the future to go break Bitcoin. So let's, let's do the math. Let's say that Bitcoin becomes like gold. It's a $10 trillion asset. Um, then the cost of attacking it would be roughly a thousand times less, which is $10 billion. Now, one of the scary things here is that it actually becomes economically rational to go attack Bitcoin. And the reason is that you can open a so-called short position and you only need to open a tiny, tiny short position on the order of 0.1% of the total Bitcoin supply. So Bitcoin is meant to be this, this really liquid asset, which, which is you know, easy to short. You know, right now, in order to attack Bitcoin and be profitable, you need to short maybe you know, 2% or 3% of the total supply. It's like very hard to pull off. But shorting with 0.1% is much, much easier. In your calculation, you still talk about it as though you'd have to buy all these rigs, but wouldn't it be a lot cheaper? If the fees are so low, don't miners just drop off anyway? Like the hash power per miner becomes higher anyways. Like you just have less of them. There's less competition. And maybe I misunderstand like the sort of end game of Bitcoin here, but like that's how it seems like it would work. No, you're right. I mean, the most likely scenario that I see is that Bitcoin will never reach $10 trillion. It will never become the size of gold. And the reason is that it doesn't have this credibly you know, sustainable security model. And so what's most likely to happen, in my opinion, is that it will stay roughly in the current ballpark of, let's say, $1 trillion. And what that means is that um, the total amount of value that's going to go to the Bitcoin miners is actually going to dwindle over time with every single halvening mm. as it's going to be less and less. And you're right, you know, like today, you know, the Bitcoin mining industry is roughly a $10 billion per year industry. In, let's say, 20 years, it might be a $1 billion industry. And so with just $1 billion, you'll be able to take down Bitcoin, which has a size of, of $1 trillion. Damn. So I'm very bearish on Bitcoin over 20 to 30 year uh, time span because there'll be enough happenings to make the security of Bitcoin very precarious. Unless, and I'm going to give the one thing that could happen, <laughs> unless the community comes together and allows change to happen. Am I right? That is correct. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, it's kind of interesting how Bitcoiners have been framing the fact that they don't have an EVM as a security benefit. And the reason is that they have this very simple UTXO model, which means that there's a lower probability of bugs and, and things like that. But one of the things we've seen empirically is that Ethereum has 100 times the fees of Bitcoin and Bitcoin is secured by fees. And so basically, Bitcoin has reduced its security by roughly 100x by, by being really, really stubborn and saying, no, we will never uh, support smart contracts and we'll stay with this one megabyte block per 10 minutes. Let's move on to ultrasound money. What is the meme? Like a few years ago, everyone was talking about this, but like, I thought it was kind of a joke or something. <laughs> and I, I don't think I followed it closely enough. And I apologize to anyone listening who, who's deep in it. I feel like I should know this better, but tell me how this starts. Ultrasound money. 
It started as a joke. Okay. Um, it's actually Vit- Vitalik came up with the joke. He said, um, if cap supply Bitcoin is sound money, then decreasing supply ether must be supersonic money. Ooh. Um, <laughs> and I kind of made a very small variation of that, you know, changed supersonic to ultrasound. Ultrasound. <laughs> nice. Um, but you, know, you might ask yourself, why would the supply of ether decrease? How is that even possible? Well, the reason is that there's two factors that come into uh, determining the supply of ether. One is issuance, which is inflationary in the sense that it, it increases the supply of ether. And then there's this other thing called the burn with EIP-1559. Every time you make a transaction, it destroys ETH. And so if you can burn more ETH than you're issuing, then your supply goes down. And this is something that um, has happened after the merge. And the reason, uh, one of the big reasons is that the merge has dramatically reduced issuance on, on Ethereum by roughly a factor of, of 10x. So if you go to the ultrasound.money website, you will see the supply of Ether having decreased since the merge. Uh, and I'm looking at it right now. It's gone down roughly 6,000 ETH since the merge 64 days ago. Cool. The story of EIP-1559, I did years ago an episode on that. That was controversial at the time, right? Like people didn't want this to happen. What were the arguments against it? Right. So I think controversial is a bit of an overstatement. I think what what really happened is that there was a very loud minority. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Maybe 1% were against it, but they were pretty loud about it. And this is actually very healthy. You know, we want these contrarians that really question our, our, our thinking. And I think part of it was around the novelty of it and the fact that the community wanted to push it through quite quickly. You know, it had only gone through, you know, two or three years of due diligence and maybe we needed to do more serious due diligence. Mm. I think the other aspect around it was that it was a a change of user experience for the the users. You know, now there's kind of these two fees, there's the so-called base fee, there's the tip, you know, at, at face value, it sounds like you know more complicated, but it turns out that from a UX perspective, it was a game changer in terms of dramatically improving the user experience of Ethereum. And the reason is that nowadays you just click send and you don't even have to set your your fee. It just it just works and you get included yeah. in the next block. It used to be that you had to participate in this auction where you had to guess the kind of the optimal gas price for including transactions. And so there was kind of two scenarios. Scenario number one is that you underbid and then your transaction is just pending. Stuck forever. Or you overbid and you feel really bad because you've overpaid. (laughs) Yeah. And now we have kind of this fair pricing mechanism, which is transparent and very easy to deal with. When was that actually put through? When did EIP-1559 actually get included? Right. Uh, so it was included 469 days ago. And the reason I know this is because <laughs> if you go to Ultron Money and you click the since burn timeframe, there's a little fire emoji. It will tell you how many days. Ah, so over a year, basically. Exactly. Over a year. And we've been burning at a, at a rate of roughly 2 million ether every single year. And in comparison, we are currently issuing on the order of 600,000 Ether per year. So we're burning three times faster than we are issuing. And so that kind of leads to a very interesting uh, shape of the supply. So we basically have been printing, printing, printing very fast from Genesis to the merge. 
And then the merge is kind of this inflection point mm -hmm. after which the supply kind of starts decreasing and then finds a new asymptote. And so one of the reasons why the ultrasound money meme is kind of important is because it's a shelling point, right? The, the shape of the supply is very unique and that creates a shelling point for the community to gather around this asset and recognize it as being special and recognize it as being worthy of so-called monetary premium. Monetary premium is this idea that an asset is somehow worth more than its intrinsic utilitarian value that maybe or originates from cash flows. And you can ask yourself, why is monetary premium useful in our industry? And the reason why it's useful is that the only way we can get a trillion dollars of economic security is if we accrue monetary premium. And so monetary premium is actually necessary for Ethereum to be successful in its mission of settling the internet of value. Interesting. So this is this going back to that, what did you call it? The ratio, like what the actual value of the staked assets are in this thinking, because it has monetary premium. Is that actually more valuable than it looks like? It's more valuable than what's actually locked? Yeah. So as you said, for the security ratio to be reasonably small, we need the value of the ETH staked to be reasonably large. Yeah. Now we can ask ourselves, where does the value of ETH even come from? And the way that I think about it is that there's there's two components. There's kind of the, the fundamentals, the cash flows. And this is how people have been valuing companies, for example. So you can think of Ethereum as being a business mm -hmm. which sells secure block space. That's the product that's being sold. And people are willing to pay for it with base fees. And the income is going to be the total amount of ETH that's burnt, that kind of accrues to the ETH holders and Ethereum, the, the, the network. Now, in terms of the expenses of this business, it's basically the cost of securing the, the blockchain, the cost of providing the product. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to be the issuance. And so one of the things that we want is, first of all, this project, this company to be sustainable, right? We want it to be profitable. We want to have more income than expenses. And when that's the case, um, you can look at profit and you can look at so-called uh, P ratios. And so right now, this is something on the, you can see on the ultrasound.money uh, website. We'll definitely add a link to that, by the way, in the show notes, because it seems like there's some awesome dashboards that we can see there. Right. So um, right now, Ethereum has a P ratio of roughly 30, which is, you know, a, a reasonable P ratio of a, of a mature company. It's like not too far away from Google, for example. Mm. But then once you have this kind of this fundamental valuation, you know, in my opinion, we have this idea of monetary premium, which derives from the use of EFA, the asset being used as collateral money. Uh, and this is idea that when you use EFA as collateral, you're reducing the velocity uh, of money and only a fraction of the total supply is basically privy to these cash flows of the burn and the issuance. So only the portion of ETH which is actively moving in the economy is paying for transaction fees. And that's the portion as well, which is subject to the issuance. Now, you can ask ourselves, why would people use Ether as collateral money? And there's kind of these two big use cases. Use case number one is using Ether as collateral money for staking. And use case number two is collateral for DeFi. Mm -hmm. And my expectation is that 
the vast majority of ether, let's say 80%, will eventually be used as collateral money. And you know, people often think that money is only useful if it's being used for payment and it's moving around. But actually, money can be used uh, when it's just sitting there and doing almost nothing other than backstopping some sort of liability. And so the, the liability that's backstopped in the case of staking is if you make some bad attestations, you make double votes and, you know, you, you, you get slashed. Yeah, you get slashed. And then DeFi might be backstopping a loan, for example, or backstopping a, a leverage position or whatever it is. I want to go back to the monetary premium, though. Yeah. Like, so if you're using it as collateral backstopping. Yes. Like, is the price of the liquid token always the same as the price of these backstopping ones, the collateralizing ones? Yes, they are the same. And they, um, one way to think about it is imagine that the coins that were used as collateral were completely lost. Mm-hmm. Then from an accounting perspective, you know, they're still included in the total market cap. But really, in practice, they, they're ne- just never sold. And so if you want to do a cash flow analysis, you're going to do a cash flow analysis on the liquid tokens. Maybe a more realistic you know, example might be um, tokens that are currently vesting, mm-hmm. right? They're kind of locked. And so they're kind of artificially low, low velocity. And, you know, it's, it's a common trick that founders do. They have like these uh, very large portion of the supply, which is, which is vesting and they kind of artificially inflate the, the, the supply. And, you know, I don't want to pick specific names, but, you know, maybe, you know, Solana is a good example where, you know, there's been these massive unlocks and, you know, the, the price has dramatically crashed mm. and it's kind of, in a quote, lost some of its, of its monetary premium. But in my opinion, there's this uh, kind of very natural, strong demand for an organic demand for use of low velocity ETH, um, which in my opinion, should it be accounted for when doing this cash flow analysis, but it's still part of the overall uh, market cap and it plays a crucial role for two things. One is economic security that we've talked about. And the other one is this concept of economic bandwidth. Now, if you want to be securing the internet of value, you need decentralized applications that have access to economic bandwidth. And one of the one of the best examples is is decentralized stablecoins. Right now, we're in a very precarious situation with stablecoins. The major stablecoins, USDT and USDC, are hundred percent centralized, hundred mm-hmm. percent trustless, tr- trusted, mm-hmm. and they're being censored, and there are massive liabilities and systemic risks for the whole space. What we want is decentralized stablecoins. Now, um, in order to to build a a strong decentralized stablecoin, you need what's called over-collateralization. You need more collateral than the debt, uh, which is the stablecoin. So what you want is a design like DAI and, and Maker. Mm-hmm. And Maker is one of the, the largest consumers of economic bandwidth out there. Millions and millions of ETH are being used, but that's still a very um, small amount of stablecoins in the grand scheme of things. DAI has on the order of $10 billion of stablecoins, where we want to be in a position where we have $10 trillion of stablecoins, mm-hmm. right? If you take all the fiat in the world, you know, we're talking on the order of $100 trillion of fiat. That's the, the order of magnitude. And, you know, we're going to want at least $10 trillion in terms of value. And so that means we need at least $10 trillion of economic bandwidth. And again, the only way to get there is through monetary premium. I want to go back a bit of a a step here. So you had said that with EIP-1559, 
it started to burn things, but emissions were still higher than burn, I guess, right? Like you're saying there was this inflection point at merge. Yes. How much did that change? Yeah. So from an economic standpoint, the merge reduced the amount of issuance by a factor of 10, roughly. Okay. So before the merge, we had 15,000 ETH every single day in issuance. To the miners at the time. Yes, it was 13.5 to the miners and 1.5 to the proof of stake participants. There was these two chains running in parallel, Uh, proof of work and proof of stake. And then the 13.5 disappeared. So we were left with only the 1.5. So we went from 15,000 ETH per day to 1.5 thousand ETH per day, roughly a 10x decrease. And the burn, you know, on a on a daily basis, on average, is something like four to five thousand ETH burnt. And so before the merge, actually the issuance was overwhelming the burn. Mm-hmm. But after the merge, uh, the burn is overwhelming the issuance. Okay, so you have less and less of the overall supply yes. going forward. And you have some of these things locked in staking. You have some of them locked in DeFi. You have some that are liquid. Yes. I still don't really understand where the monetary premium comes in, though. Like, are you saying that, like, you take that number of tokens, you multiply it by the price per one token, that's the market cap, the number of tokens are going down, so you're thinking, like, the value of each individual token will go up if the market cap stays steady. But what is the monetary premium on that? That's what I didn't fully get from what you explained. Okay, so there's there's kind of two ways to think of monetary premium. There's kind of the qualitative way and the quantitative way. Let's start with the qualitative way, which is that monetary premium is something very, very special. It's kind of the societal illusion that we've agreed that we're going to use one specific asset as, as money. And like, how do societies coordinate on choosing one specific asset? You know, it used to be salt and then shells and then gold and silver. And it's kind of evolves over time, you know, maybe a bit, maybe Bitcoin soon, mm-hmm. uh, maybe Ether soon. Um, and it turns out that the way we coordinate as humans to a large extent is through shelling points and memes, right? And this, this is part of the reason why this all shell money meme is so important. And one of the most important memes in, 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 in money is around scarcity. That's why, you know, Bitcoin has such a huge emphasis on this 21 million limit, right? And so the ultrasound money meme is kind of the equivalent of the 21 million um, mm. Bitcoin limit is kind of the scarcity meme. But there's, there's other things which are, you know, important as shelling points, like one very, very important shelling point in the context of, of blockchains is security. And today... Ethereum is the most secure blockchain in the world. Mm. Uh, it has the most amount of economic security, roughly $20 billion, wow. at least twice more than, than Bitcoin. And so it has these two most important shining points going for it. It's the most secure and the most scarce uh, bl- bl- blockchain I- in the world, where the supply will decrease for the next 100 years and the supply of uh, Bitcoin, for example, will inflate, will increase for the next hundred years. So the, 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 the scarcity is kind of like very much black and white. And so is the, the, the security. And so as a society, there is a possibility that we agree that EFA, the asset, is worthy of monetary premium. And not, not only is it worthy, but it's kind of necessary for it to be successful in its mission of securing the internet of value by providing economic security and providing economic bandwidth. Now, once as a society, we've kind of agreed on on these shelling points, we can ask ourselves, how much monetary premium can we expect from a quantitative standpoint? Mm. And the way that it works here 
it's it's just a model, right? It's just a, a way of to think about it. It's kind of the best model that I've found so far is to look at the so-called velocity of money. So there's two types of money, in my opinion. There's kind of cold money and hot money. Hot money is what's known as currency. The word currency comes from the word current. It means money that flows. Mm -hmm. So you can think of money that's used for payments of, of NFTs, for example, or, or even payments of block space for transaction fees. And that's one important part because it leads to cash flows around the burn. And you can think of this hot money aspect of the economy as being like a company. But then there's this other also very important aspect of the Ethereum economy, which is the cold money, the cold ether. And that's where the collateral comes in. Yeah. And if we have let's say 90% of all ETH, which is in the cold money scenario, then in my opinion, like these 90% don't really play a, a part in the cash flows. Like Ethereum, the company is really only the hot money. Everything else is this other thing, is kind of this use as a collateral money. And so if the 10% of the supply is worth, let's say, one trillion dollars because of cash flows. It's a very successful company, you know, like like Apple or Google, which has a lot of income and relatively uh, few expenses. Then the other ninety percent, you know, should give it kind of a a ten x monetary premium. So there's this illiquidity multiplier. That's another term that I use, which is that because part of it is liquid, it comes in as a multiplier in your overall valuation. In, in terms of like the fully diluted valuation. And it's the same thing with, with some blockchains out there where maybe 90% of the tokens are illiquid because they're vesting. And so there's this 10x illiquidity multiplier that should be accounted for when you're looking at the whole market cap. But unfortunately, vesting is not sustainable and it's artificial. Mm. On the other hand, staking and use of Ether in DeFi is, is organic, it's natural. And the reason is that it's, it's tied to this idea of the cost of money, right? So when you're uh, staking, you have various costs uh, involved. You need to pay for your hardware, for your internet connection, electricity, and you need to pay what are called capital costs, which is the opportunity cost of money. And it turns out that the vast majority of the costs are opportunity costs of money. And so if the cost of money is, let's say, 3%, what we should expect is that in the equilibrium, the amount of ETH staked is going to be such that the issuance is going to be roughly 3%, um, so that you know profit margins kind of tend to zero and mm. validators are still profitable. And it turns out that if uh, with a 3% uh, cost of money, we should expect about 30 million ETH uh, staked. So... That's kind of a huge lump of, of ether, which organically will be locked up and mm -hmm. with low velocity. And then something I think similar will happen uh, in the context of stable coins. We need decentralized stable coins. There's no other way. We, in my opinion, we can't be successful without these decentralized stable coins. Someone I'm hoping will you know make a massive breakthrough in terms of improving the user experience or the tokenomics around it or something, and that will lead to a huge demand for ETH the asset as collateral. Now, one of the things you can ask yourself is, can we use other forms of collateral than Ether? And it turns out that for staking, there's no choice. You have to use Ether and nothing else. For DeFi, you do have choice. 
But there is a there are strong reasons to use ether specifically, and the term that we use here is we say that it's pristine collateral. Ether is the only form of collateral that has no contract risk, no governance risk, no oracle risk, all sorts of tell risks that um, you know, no custodial risk, no counterparty risk, mm. and that makes it a very attractive asset for for use in, in DeFi. Why, when you talk about stablecoins backed by crypto? Why does DAI not work? Why does MakerDAO's product not satisfy what you want? Right. The, the, the main problem is that there isn't enough economic bandwidth. So I, I can check the numbers, but I think roughly speaking, DAI is using 3 million ETH now. And that corresponds to, to some amount of, of decentralized stablecoins. Are you just saying it's not popular enough yet? I'm curious if there's, like, why isn't it then? What kind of breakthrough would you need? Would it just be like a marketing breakthrough? <laughs> like getting more people to participate in it? Or is it like you need a new concept? Yeah. So let's say that we want to increase the total amount of decentralized stablecoins by a factor of a thousand, which is what we need to fulfill our, our vision of, of being the internet of value. How can we do that? Well, Option number one is just for DAI to be more popular in the sense that more ETH is being used to, to back DAI. But the problem is that there's only so much ETH out there. So if you're using 3 million, then you know, maybe you can increase that to 30, uh, you know, 10x. But pushing it beyond that is going to be very, very hard because there's a very limited supply of, of ether. And so really, that shows you the importance of the ETH price itself. So you, you've got a 10x by having more ETH as collateral, but you need another 100x that has to come from just the price of ETH uh, increasing. And that's, to a large extent, only possible through ether gathering monetary premium. And in order for, for it to get to that point, we need kind of memes, we need shelling points, mm -hmm. we need society to kind of somehow believe that ether, the asset, is worthy of monetary premium. And... Basically, education, which is what the ultrasound of money meme is all about, is about spreading this message and encouraging people to learn about IFA the asset and appreciate its selling points may you know help IFA the asset accrue monetary premium. I'm so not an economist, but when you say monetary premium, should we be thinking price worth more, like token worth more than it seems? Like <laughs> every time you say it, I'm still like, oh, what is he, what is he trying to tell me? Yeah. Like what's the translation for what that actually is? So there's, there kind of, there's two things that need to happen. First of all is that Ethereum needs to be a super successful business. It needs to sell a ton of secure block space. And, you know, scalability is going to play a very important role here so that, you know, billions of people can be paying these transaction fees and that leads to income and profit for Ethereum. And here we have this ultra high velocity economy, which is very successful. But we, we, what we also need is kind of this ultra low velocity economy to also be successful. And the, the reason is that it's going to lead to this illiquidity multiplier to kick in by a factor of, of roughly 10x is what we can expect in the best case. And this market, like, where is this price even picked from, though? Like, you talk about the multiplier, but is this like on CoinGecko, it'll show up higher for some reason? Like, this is what I, where I don't get it. Like, what's it compared to? Like, that multiplier of value right. versus 
what is your baseline? Are you still basing it on USD, the, actually? The baseline is the fundamental value as a company. And I think the best example that I can give here is gold. So gold is a $10 trillion asset. And you can ask yourself, where does the value of gold come from? Now, it turns out that gold is an industrial metal. It's an extremely useful industrial metal. And every single iPhone and computer, or really strictly any piece of electronics, there's gold that's being used. And if you try to value gold based on its cash flows as an industrial metal, it should be worth on the order of $1 trillion. Mm-hmm. Now, you can ask yourself, where does the extra $9 trillion come from? Well, it, it comes from the fact that there's this crazy societal illusion that we, we think of gold as money. Love of and gold. And people are keeping it in vaults. Yeah. And central banks are locking it up it's and so people funny. use it as jewelry. They love it because it's shiny. Yes. So the shininess kind of and jewelry might be the equivalent of this silly joke ultrasound money meme. But wow. it, it, okay, okay, okay. it's still extremely important. So it just turns out empirically that societal illusions or myths are extremely valuable yeah. in society. And like one example here might be the nation state, mm-hmm. right? If you look at boundaries and frontiers, like this, this is just completely arbitrary. And, you know, people just get excited about the flag and, you know, their, their football team or something. Yeah. Um, think of the legal system and the police system. Why is it that People in suits, you know, and a stick and they somehow get authority. But if some other random person in the street would perform the same exact actions as police, but they didn't have the uniform, then people would would start freaking out. What about religion, right? Religion is kind of like there's these crosses and like, I don't want to insult anyone, but there's like all these symbolism, which Rituals. uh, rituals and 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 yet, you know, religion is extremely powerful. It has allowed the coordinations of, of, of millions, if not billions of people uh, to do all sorts of things, you know, some good, some bad, maybe crusades, you know, arguably you know, a bad thing. I don't know. But yeah, money is one of these societal solutions, which is just incredibly useful just as a coordination tool, totally. just like the legal system or nation states or religion. Yeah. So, okay, now I want to understand like ultrasound money, So it was a meme. It was like a joke. It was a concept. It kind of informed some economic planning or thought research, the work that you've been doing. But like, what is it also? It's a team. Is it a company? Like, what is this ultrasound money? Right. So originally it just started as a joke and then it became kind of this educational website. And now it's a community, a movement. And so it turns out that uh, David Hoffman, who's one of the hosts of the the Bankless show, came up with emojis to describe the ultrasound money meme. He had the bat and the sound emoji because bats produce ultrasounds. So that, you know, Mm. is a good set of emojis. (laughs) This is making some of Twitter make more sense to me. I was so out of the loop, Justin. This is hilarious. Okay. Yes. Keep going. So emojis are kind of one of the most condensed forms of communicating information. And memes are nothing but that they're kind of these small mm-hmm. pieces of cultural information that kind of spread virally from mind to mind, very similar to a virus, a biological virus that spreads from body to body. And it just so happens that we have on our hands a pretty viral meme where we now have 
over 6,000 accounts on Twitter that have this, this bad signal. And the, the Twitter accounts is just a meme machine, right? It's, its role is just to spread the meme further and further, partly through, you know, building out the website, but also uh, through trying to foster this community. So there's a, a POAP that's been issued. There's also a Discord, which is going to be open in a few weeks. And there's all sorts of initiatives that are being put forward to try and, 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 and spread the meme more. And you know, one of the latest initiatives that I mentioned earlier in the podcast is this ultrasound relay, where you know, we're trying to improve the PR, the image of Ethereum. Really, this censorship problem has no fundamentals, right? Because as, as I mentioned, censor transactions take one minute to come on chain, which is you know, totally fine. It's not an issue. Uh, but from a PR standpoint, it just doesn't look good. So it's kind of an anti-shelling point, as it were, which we're trying to address. What's your relationship to the ultrasound money movement? Do you run the Twitter account? <laughs> like, who runs the Twitter account? <laughs> right. So I bought the ultrasound.money domain. Okay. And at the end of a two and a half hour long podcast on the bank list, I said, I bought the domain. Let's try and do some sort, something with it. And like 10 people came to me and said, I want to help out. Cool. And right now we have about four, four people that are kind of working full time. Um, there's two devs and there's one, one person who spends her time responding to DMs and things like that. And there's also me. And you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, just grow organically. We're, we, we think of ourselves as a public good. And, you know, very recently we, uh, we received, you know, public good funding. Initially it was me that has been funding this project out of, you know, my personal money. So, mm. but uh, it, it looks like we might be able to di diversify the sources of funding. And if the meme becomes successful, then, you know, maybe we can be like a, a 10 or 20 or 100 people project. Cool. And you want to you wanna actually create a new relayer. Are you competing with Flashbots? Um, I don't think Flashbots is very happy with the current situation. I think Flashbots wants to focus on, on the builder side of things. Um, you know, they have this Suave and the decentralized builder. Yeah. And I think them running a relay is is more of a necessary evil. And I think... You know, they're, they're waiting for the relay ecosystem to mature a bit more before, you know, maybe maybe moving out of the relay game. So I think uh, they're very, mm. very encouraging. And I've had you know discussions with them where they're really encouraging of this uh, this effort to uh, to put forward an ultrasound relay. I want to just mention one other thing before we sign off, which is zero knowledge technology. I sort of want to go back to the earlier topic of like VDFs. Is there any VDF ZK overlap? Is there any way for those to be used together? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so it turns out that the VDF that we have built an ASIC for needs to be paired with a zero knowledge proof system, a, a SNOC. And Basically, the, the SNOC provides the, the V in the VDF, the verifiable. It allows you to verify that time has elapsed without having to do the computation, the sequential computation yourself. Amazing. So there's a SNARK in the VDF construction, actually. Yeah. But when you talk about the ASIC, like, as I know there's also ZK ASICs or like ZK hardware being developed. Would you have like a shared hardware piece doing both of these things then? Great question. So right now the ASIC does only the sequential computation and we're doing the SNOC proving in GPUs. Okay. But 
the Ethereum Foundation and various other people in the ecosystem want to build a SNOC ASIC. And so that is kind of what we're actively thinking about uh, in terms of the, the next ASIC that we would go build. Neat. I've heard there's like some community efforts, like things like Z Prize, which are also created in order to like push that work. Now, before we sign off, I just have one last thing I want to mention, and that's the Nova whiteboard sessions. We actually recorded this earlier this year. It's just come out as part of the whiteboard sessions that we've been running. Nova, like, do you do any work on that? I was actually always curious, like, you know, when I talked to you about doing the whiteboard, you were like, let me present this really cool paper. But are you still working sort of in the ZK direction? Are you exploring, are you still doing research uh, in our space? Yeah, so Nova is a really exciting construction uh, because you can think of it as essentially the fastest snark you could ever hope for if you're working with elliptic curves. And it's the one that we're using for the VDF project. Oh, cool. And uh, one of the really exciting properties of Nova is that not only is, kind of, is it optimal from a prover standpoint, but it's extremely hardware acceleration friendly partly because it doesn't have these FFTs. And so it's one of the prime targets to be building a SNARK ASIC for. And one of the end games, you know, in the Ethereum roadmap is this idea of a ZK EVM at layer one. And in order to get there, you know, right now we're, we're off from a performance standpoint by several orders of magnitude and mm. uh, having this uh, hardware acceleration is going to be a critical part to, to getting to where we want to be. That is so cool. Bringing it back to ZK EVM. Yes. Uh, we've done a few episodes on that. So I'll try to dig one up and add it here. But yeah, share, I mean, maybe as a sign off, what is that vision? Share a little bit about like next stages or what you're seeing coming up. Okay. So <laughs> I feel like we have a whole episode ahead of us if <laughs> we let ourselves, but yeah, go for it. Yeah, so I have a very kind of crazy vision, which is that I'm hoping that the proving for the ZK VMs will happen not in data centers, like it's currently happening for many of the ZK rollups. Um, you know, a lot of the ZK rollups, because it's still very early days, they have so-called centralized proving. And what they do is that they rent out racks and racks and racks of hardware on AWS or some other hosting provider. And this is not good for liveness in the sense that if the centralized prover goes down, everything kind of collapses. The ZK rollup stalls. Instead, I think the position where we want to be in is we have these pieces of hardware which allows people from home to be participating in, in the proving. And we have this idea of a distributed prover network where collaboratively, like a few of these machines can build proofs for these, for these rollups. Now, one of the interesting thing here is that it's possible that ASICs are more about decentralization than they are about performance. And one of the consequences here is that really what we need is people to have the hardware in their home and be able to turn it on if and when a primary prover goes down. So I kind of see my vision is that there's a hybrid model. Mm. It's the backup. And so it's kind of an insane thing where we'd be investing tens of millions of dollars to build these pieces of hardware 
to ship them to people around the world. And then they just never turned on. <laughs> They're just connected <laughs> to the internet and powered on and ready to turn on at a moment's notice, but they're never actually turned on. And so that means that there's no impact from a power consumption standpoint. There's no impact from a heat standpoint or a noise standpoint. And because it's an ASIC, which is custom designed for this one specific operation, it's a very small box with a low footprint. And it's kind of this uh, this crazy vision. <laughs> wow. That's like the fallback, huh? Yes. That's like, that's the World War Three kind of scenario too. Exactly. Cool. Well, Justin, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this amazing update. I loved this conversation. I feel like I got a chance to ask you about, obviously, like this big meme I clearly had missed, but also <laughs> um, I love how it sort of circles back through the VDFs and things we had talked about earlier. It's really great catching up. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Anna. I want to say a big thank you to the podcast team, Henrik, Tanya, and Rachel, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening.